Every 45 seconds, someone in the United States has a stroke, with about 700,000 strokes occurring each year. What does the latest research tell us about the brain's ability to recover after a stroke? You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Richard Harvey, Associate Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, and Medical Director of the Center for Stroke Rehabilitation at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Harvey. Thank you. Today, we are discussing neuroplasticity and neurorecovery after a stroke. Dr. Harvey, what exactly is a stroke and how common is it? The classic definition of a stroke is a sudden onset of a focal neurological deficit that is not due to trauma or any other mass lesion. So typically, it's due to either an intracranial hemorrhage or to an ischemic infarct due to a thrombosis in an artery. And which is more common? The ischemic strokes are more common. About 70 to 80 percent of all strokes are due to a thrombosis or a lacunar infarct, which is a small occlusion of a deep penetrating vessel of the uh, central nervous system. And then hemorrhagic strokes make up the other 20 to 30 percent, of which those are either subarachnoid hemorrhages due to aneurysm ruptures or intracerebral hemorrhages, most likely due to hypertension, but also can be due to AV malformations arteriovenous malformation. Besides the vascular abnormalities, what's the reason for some of these strokes? Well, the ischemic strokes in particular have risk factors, and though there's a long list of them, the top three are hypertension, diabetes mellitus, and hyperlipidemia. And then in the stroke community, there's a lot more talk now about metabolic syndrome or syndrome X which is that syndrome of moderate obesity with glucose intolerance, mild hypertension, and borderline hyperlipidemia, which is probably a risk factor. And then you can add on top of that smoking, excessive alcohol use. Those are also risk factors. And what about congenital? And then, of course, yes, the ones you cannot modify, such as males are at higher risk for stroke and as are African-American. Are TIAs necessarily a prelude to a stroke? TIAs are a warning sign. And what we recommend is when somebody has a TIA, which is a transient ischemic attack, which usually lasts a few minutes where they have a focal deficit or amaurosis fugax, which is that loss of vision in one eye, we consider that equivalent to a stroke in terms of urgency of treatment. So typically, it's best to call 911 and get to emergency room right away because your risk of having a stroke in the next few months is about 35%. So what happens when someone has a stroke and they're taken to the emergency room? If an emergency room is providing acute stroke care according to modern standards, which are typically found in stroke centers, you'll be seen by a physician immediately on arrival and have a neurological examination. Laboratory tests are taken immediately And once it's confirmed that the symptoms are consistent with a stroke, CAT scan is done immediately to determine if it's hemorrhagic or if there's no evidence of hemorrhage. At that point, a decision is made whether or not a clot-busting agent, that is, recombinant TPA, is given intravenously to dissolve a thrombus. That has to be done 
within three hours of onset of the stroke. So probably the bigger issue is getting the public to know what the signs and symptoms of the stroke are and getting them to the emergency room in a timely manner. Well, why don't you tell us what would be the classic signs and symptoms for the public? Number one is sudden onset of weakness on one side of the body, sudden loss of vision in one or both eyes, sudden loss of balance or vertigo, sudden loss of ability to speak or understand speech, and sudden onset of the worst headache of your life. So those are things that patients, and we should instruct our patients to be cautious of if they have any or their relatives have any of those symptoms. Yes, and the American Stroke Association has done a good job, along with the National Stroke Association, they've both done a good job of getting that information out in the public sector as well. The important thing is if you get those symptoms to call 911 right away. Don't call your physician. Don't call a family member. Just go to the emergency room immediately. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at Chicago Medical School, and we are speaking with Dr. Richard Harvey, associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, and medical director of the Center for Stroke Rehabilitation at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. We are talking about neuroplasticity and neurorecovery after stroke. Dr. Harvey, what is neuroplasticity, and how does that relate to recovery from a stroke? Well, in years past, back in the 60s and 70s, when we cared for people with acute stroke in a rehab center, the understanding of the brain at that time was that it was fairly hardwired, so that if you had a stroke, you lost a piece of that wiring, and it wouldn't come back. Therapy then focused mostly on compensatory strategies. So if you were weak on one side of the body, we taught you how to get dressed with one hand and to use devices to help get around, such as walkers and canes. But a sort of founding colleague in physical medicine rehabilitation named Dr. Bach E. Rita from Minnesota, who was taking care of a lot of these patients, said, you know, they're getting better. And I'm not so sure this idea that the brain is hardwired is necessarily true. He came up with the idea that perhaps some things are happening in the central nervous system after stroke, like sprouting of nerves to make new connections or finding new pathways for signals to pass from cortex to the periphery. Perhaps he even suggested regeneration of nerve cells occur. In the 1990s, we had the decade of the brain, and a lot of research was done then into the mechanisms of recovery from injury to the brain. And we discovered that Dr. Bakirita's theories were pretty much true. These kinds of things do happen, and nerve cells do change after an injury. In fact, an acute injury will cause an inflammatory response in the central nervous system, which generates neural growth factors and other cellular stimulants, which induce new synaptic connections to be made, new dendrite formation within the different layers of the cortex and subcortical tissue. And so the intact neural system does change after a stroke. And what about the time that has elapsed from the actual stroke itself? It's interesting. The ideal time to make neurological recovery after a stroke is in the first weeks to month. And so if you Look at the neurological examination on a regular basis during the first 
two months after a stroke, you'll notice significant changes during that time period. What a lot of people think, though, is that that's it, that you sort of have that window of time, and that's the only time when you can achieve recovery, and thereafter, you can't expect it. But modern research shows that even somebody who's had a chronic stroke, perhaps a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, who still has some neurological deficits, if they have some active movement, say, on their affected side, they can still benefit from therapeutic interventions that facilitate neuroplasticity at a central level. Now, these interventions must be done by someone in a facility like you're in, yes? Well, yes and no. There's a principle behind how one trains and recovers motor control in paralysis. And mostly what the therapists really do is educate the patient and help understand how their body works and how they themselves can train. I think what some of the research we've done today has told us, based on animal studies, where the scientists can actually map out the part of the motor cortex that, say, represents the hand. They can use intracortical microstimulation to actually determine what parts of the cortex are representing, say, the wrist extensors or the finger flexors. And the, They've shown that in an animal that suffers a small injury to the motor cortex representing hand, that other parts of the cortex can begin to represent parts of the body that were previously injured. But the necessary factor to make that happen is that the animal model, the animal that has the injury, practices skills that it has lost. If the animal doesn't do the exercises to regain the skills, the neuroplasticity doesn't happen. So what the therapist's role is, is to first and foremost, educate the patient about what they need to do to recover. And secondly, to guide them in what kind of exercises will best achieve their goal. So motivation of the patient is extremely important. It is. And probably the other side of it is intensity of therapy. Now, most insurance companies will pay for therapy for a patient, either in the acute level or even chronically. But they're only going to pay for so much time of a therapist because the therapist, of course, is very expensive. And that's okay. The critical thing is to get that neuroplasticity to happen at the central level. The patient needs to have a lot of repetitions of practice of the task. So, for example, if they're practicing picking up coins and putting them on a top to gain good pincer strength between thumb and index, the more they do that, the better and more completely that skill will come back. Well, why not work on it five, six hours a day instead of three hours a week? And so that's really where the field is going. So people who are recovering from stroke really should be doing a lot of the exercises they learn in therapy at home. Finally, I saw something. It was a patient who had a stroke and had an expressive aphasia, and he could not speak, but the therapist taught him to sing, and he could sing to communicate. Have you ever seen something similar? Yes, that's a therapeutic approach called melodic intonation therapy. And what that does is the language system, which differs from the motor system in that the motor system is redundant in the central nervous system. Most of what you look at when you look at a brain, including the frontal lobe, the motor cortex, the cerebellum, are all motor-based structures. And then on the left side of the cortex, you have the language area, which includes those classic parts of the brain we all learned about, 
Broca's area and Wernicke's area. If those are injured, you definitely have trouble with language function. And the kind of aphasia this patient had was more of the Broca's type, where you have difficulty with the fluency of your language. Well, the right brain actually is important for melodic activity. So when we sing, there is activity going on in the right brain. And so the therapy is not necessarily just singing, but what it is instead of having the person just say the words, what they're asking the patient to do is sort of use tonal quality to get the words out. Fascinating. I want to thank Dr. Richard Harvey, who has been our guest. We have been discussing neuroplasticity and neuro recovery after stroke. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.